9 is in the Pew Bibles provided on page 37. We will also, I will do my best to have it up on the screen. I do not have a um, computer working person, so I'm trying to do it with my phone on the remote control. Um, And sometimes I get distracted, and so I will do my best to keep up with myself on this. Now, the... uh, if you can't hear me this morning, it's because our cleaning crew unplugged this to plug in the vacuum. So maybe you can hear me now. Um, you know, in any case, Genesis chapter 39. I apologize for that delay. Genesis chapter 39. We've been looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, you know, we've gone through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And when we last left Joseph, he was in pretty bad shape. <coughs> Joseph uh, had been betrayed by his brothers, had his coat ripped off. His father believed that he was dead, and he had no hope. His brothers had taken him, thrown him into a pit, intended to kill him, but decided they would be better off if they could make a little profit on him by selling him into slavery. He was dragged away and taken off to Egypt. You wonder, how much worse could it possibly get? You know, we think here about his brother's sin and how God used his brother's sin. And if you know the story of Joseph, you know there are many more things that God is going to use. This climax of the story of Joseph is where his brothers are afraid, and he says, you meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it for good. He said, the the climax of it is that all these things that people try to do, God's got something bigger going on. And so as I think about that, I think about uh, the Voyager spacecraft. You know, the farthest object mankind has in space, you know, in outer space. It's an interstellar space. Right now it's further than Pluto. It's the farthest man-made object out. You know, it's still just a fraction of a distance to the nearest star. But it's, it's, the biggest thing, it's the biggest thing we've thrown. And how did we do it? Well, if you know anything about it, we did something called a gravity assist. That means that we launched it toward Jupiter. And when the Voyager craft got close to Jupiter, it fell into Jupiter's orbit. And it sped up because it was falling into Jupiter. And because they timed it with the way Jupiter was spinning around the sun and different things, the gravity worked together to fling the Voyager out on the other side, going faster than it was before. See, the Jupiter tried to pull it in, and the sun tried to pull it in. And because they were both trying to pull the Voyager spacecraft down, it flung it out beyond the sun's reach and beyond Jupiter's reach. It's pretty neat. In this world... People sometimes try to pull you in with their gravitational force, pull you down. Satan tries to pull you down. But God times it just perfectly so that those things that try to pull you down work together to take you higher than you've ever been. That is what the life of Joseph tells us, is that all the things that seem to pull down, God uses to swing things into another direction. We read here the story of Joseph, the title today, Suffering for Serving, in our series Meant for Good, as we see how God works all these things together. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him out of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. 
The Ishmaelites bring him to Egypt where he's purchased by uh, Potiphar as a slave. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. Um, that makes Potiphar roughly the equivalent of the police chief. He, it's kind of a, they don't have the clear distinctions between police and military that we have, but he runs, he runs security. He's the head of security. And so he's in charge of the jail. He's in charge of the soldiers. He's in charge of different things. And uh, so he's influential. He's important. That'll be important to us. So he's got some influence, and he purchases Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now I want you to notice something here. Where is Joseph? He is a slave in Egypt, far from home, far from his family, betrayed by his family. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says the Lord was with him. You know, we get that mixed up a lot of the times, don't we? We think that God's with us when things are going well, and God is far from us when things are not going so well. Joseph is a slave in a foreign country, and the very first thing that the Bible tells us is that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, and because the Lord was with Joseph, he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. He was prosperous, he was a good worker, and so he didn't have to work outside anymore as a slave. He was brought in as a house servant. And the master saw that the Lord was with him. You know, of course, Potiphar did not worship the Lord. But Potiphar says there is something different about Joseph. There's something special about him. He sees that the Lord is with him. He sees the influence. And that the Lord made all that he did to prosper. And Joseph found grace in his sight. And he served him. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he had, he put in his hand. Now... What I want you to see here immediately, and this is, this is fantastic, is that even in slavery, God's blessing brings Joseph to a higher level than he could have imagined. He's a slave. He's owned by Potiphar, but he becomes Potiphar's second in command in the whole house. You know, you may think that you're in some kind of a situation where nothing good can come out of it. That's because we dream too small. Our God is too small. If we understood how big our God really is, we would realize that we've got the kind of God that raises the dead, the kind of God that puts a slave over the whole house because he was with him. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. So Potiphar gets everything that he wants. Potiphar has all of these blessings because Joseph is there. Now I want you to remember, the promise that God made to Abraham was, you'll have this land, you'll have this, uh, you'll have many descendants, and through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Can, uh, Dad, can you get the remote and turn the screen off, please? It's back there in the sound booth. That's going to distract me. So I know everybody looking straight at it are going to have problems. The, the, the threefold blessing. Now Isaac uh, got a little more. God told Isaac, I will be with you. Now I want you to see the Abrahamic promise coming to fruition here. The idea of uh, you'll be you know, many is not... Is, is here because Joseph is a descendant of Abraham. He's already proof that, yes, Abraham would have a son, that, yes, that son would have uh, 
a multitude. He is, moreover, proof that uh, when God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Because because Joseph is taken care of, because Joseph is given provision, God blesses Potiphar. Moreover, he said, through you, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And what I want you to see is that this is the way that that works. How does God bless the whole world? Well, of course, we know God blesses the whole world through his presence in Jesus. How does God bless Potiphar? God blesses Potiphar through Joseph because the Lord was with him. Because through this great-grandson of Abraham, because through the, this descendant of Abraham, the Lord is with this descendant of Abraham, and so the Lord is there for Potiphar and blesses Potiphar. Because the descendants of Abraham bring the presence of God to the world, all the nations of the earth are blessed through the descendants of Abraham. If we had not had the descendants of Abraham bring us Jesus, then of course, we would not receive blessing today. But because Joseph had God with him, Potiphar was blessed. Because through Joseph's family, specifically through the line of Judah, Jesus came, we had Emmanuel, we had God with us. So how is it that God would bless all the nations of the earth? Because he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. How does God bless the world now through the church? Because of his presence with us. So that's the very same thing. Potiphar is blessed because of Joseph. He is blessed because of Joseph's sake, because the Lord is with him. Verse 6, And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person, well favored. See, Potiphar puts Joseph over everything. It says he, he, Joseph was in charge of everything except what Potiphar ate. Potiphar says, the only thing I worry about is chewing. Joseph, you handle the rest. And of course, you know, that's a, they, I've read several commentaries that spent a bunch of time talking about how the, uh, you know, it was because Jews and Egyptians didn't eat together, which is true, but it's overthinking the whole point. <laughs> the point is, Potiphar says, I only worry about what I absolutely have to. Joseph, you don't have to feed me, but you worry about the rest, and I'm not going to worry about it. That's how trusted Joseph was, because he followed God. You know, can you imagine how different our world would be if non-Christian employers said, you know, I don't really want to be a Christian, but I sure wish that everybody that worked for me acted like Christians act. Can you imagine if servers at restaurants said, boy, can I get to work this Sunday afternoon? Because those Christians are just so nice. That's not what they say. What if it were? What if we were so close to God that we showed people God was with us and so we just got entrusted with more and more responsibility? How different would we be? How much more would we be salt and light? But then we see Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. He is the only man that in the Bible is described like this, a goodly person. It says he had a... a, um, an, an attractive body and a pretty face, basically, is what goodly person and well-favored means. He's the only man that is described this way in the Bible. The only woman that is described this way in the Bible is his mother, Rachel. Now, I want you to think about Joseph here. Joseph is uh, the firstborn son and the only son that's uh, older at this time. You know, he was 17. 
the only son of his uh, mother. And his mother was the woman that when his father saw her, he said, yes, I'll work seven years in slavery if I can just marry her. He is the one who ran up to her, kissed her, and wept. Okay, so he has inherited his mother's good looks. And now he's going to get some attention for it. You see, he got, Joseph is blessed, and maybe by the time we read this, we'll feel like he's blessed in one way too many. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. So Potiphar's wife comes and starts trying to seduce Joseph. Now Joseph is in a very precarious position. Um, he certainly can't say anything to his master. You know, if he went to Potiphar and said, uh, you know, your wife is uh, saying, come lie with me. Certainly Potiphar wouldn't have believed this foreign slave over his own wife. So Joseph is in a difficult situation where all he can do is just kind of avoid it. She comes, she says, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He said, how can I betray my master's trust and sin against God? Two deep theological things there. One is that whenever we sin against another person, we're really sinning against God. You can never isolate, you can never separate those two things. When you sin against someone made in the image of God, you are sinning against God. The reason that the Bible says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, that word like means of the same nature, of the same character. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor truly without loving God. So he said, how could I do this and sin against God? The second great theological point that I think we need to remember is that the more kindness someone has shown us, the greater a sin it is to sin against them. Joseph says, how could I do this great sin because Potiphar has trusted me? He's done all these different things for me. So somebody wants to know why hell is a fair punishment for sin. It's because God has done everything up into giving his own life for us. And so in response to the purity of that love, any sin is amplified a thousand times. The holy, perfect love of God makes any sin against him infinitely worse than it would be otherwise. Because he gave up his son for us, how could we then turn our backs and sin against him? Every time we sin, whether you're saved or not, when we sin, if we kept in mind all the time the way that God loved us, Could we ever do anything against God if in our mind, whenever we started to sin, we saw the cross? But we've got very short memories, don't we? Very short memories. So that's what we see here, those two things. So he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her, to lie with her, or to lie by her, or to be with her. He said that... uh, she, came, she comes to him day after day after day. And he won't do it. He won't sleep with her. He won't even be with her. You know, he tries to stay away from her as much as possible. Smart strategy. There are too many people that, um, you know, they, uh, marriage counseling statistics show that uh, 
a lot of people will have an affair and then will then want to stay friends with the person they had an affair with, which I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Um, you spell stupid, S-T-U-P-I-D, and you should write it in big letters over anybody that ever says that. Well, we're just friends. <laughs> That's not how that works. Once you have uh, crossed a line with somebody, you never change your relationship with that person. Joseph says, because she is approaching me in this way, I've got, I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm not even going to get into that situation. I'm going to run away from evil. How close do we want to get to sin all the time? We say, well, you know, I'm not going to do anything wrong, but I'm just going to edge up to it. Here, he says, stay away. He won't even be with her. And it came to pass about this time, after some time, that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men in the house there within. Now, so he goes to work. You know, he's not able to avoid her completely. He still does his job. And he comes to work one day, and there is nobody else there. Now, you know, again, uh, men and women, never put yourself in that position. If it is at all possible, do not put yourself in the position where you are alone with somebody of the opposite sex. It just is asking for trouble. Joseph did his best to avoid it, but he couldn't avoid it completely. He had to go to work. He comes to work. Maybe he didn't realize that she was the only one there. But he gets there and she is, you know. Uh, this is something where um, even like um, if, I, if I need to do um, counseling with a woman, you know, and I can't get somebody else to be there, I say, well, let's go, you know, let's go outside. Let's meet somewhere, you know. Let's meet at Starbucks, you know. Try to, try to avoid being with somebody by yourself. He's asking for trouble. You know, sometimes something comes up, somebody comes by the church or whatever, and you're in that situation, you try to minimize it as much as possible because you're putting yourself in a precarious position. Why would you flirt with danger? You know, maybe some of you have seen these pictures of people uh, building the Empire State Building, like standing on beams and different things, waving, smoking cigarettes, standing at the top of the world. I don't want to do that. <laughs> If I am somewhere up above, I want to hang on for dear life. I don't want to sort of tilt on the end and see what happens. And if you wouldn't want to do that on the top of a building, you know, Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy the body and after which there's, not much where they, they can, there's nothing more they can do unto you. Fear him that can destroy the body and the soul in hell. You understand? Sin is so much more dangerous than anything else we would do. So you would never... Go up to a downed power line, stick your tongue out, and say, I wonder how close I can get without getting shocked. Never reach down there and say, well, you know, I, I bet that if I get, I, I could probably get as close as I want, and as long as I don't touch it, nobody would do that. So why is it with sin, which can fry you deeper than electricity ever could, that we say, well, you know, it's not that big of, I'm just going to see how, I, I won't make any, I won't do anything wrong. You know, maybe when you were growing up, your parents said, uh, you know, I trust you, it's the other people I don't trust. Well, I hope that you know yourself well enough to say, I don't trust me, much less the other people. You are capable of sin. You've got your old nature and you are capable of sin, so stay away from it. That's Joseph's strategy. And as much as he's able to hold on to it, it works. But finally, he comes into work one day in verse 12, 
and there's no one else there. And she caught him by his garment. Now, I don't know exactly how this happened because the Hebrews in the patriarchal period wore two garments. Uh, They wore a shirt, like a T-shirt, a long T-shirt, and a pair of like calf-length shorts. And so somehow Potiphar's wife has been planning this. And so she comes up behind him and grabs onto him somehow and pulls his shirt off. And Joseph, you know, I mean, assume a gentleman is not going to physically fight her, right? And so she comes up, grabs his shirt, pulls it off, and says, lie with me. She thinks she's got him now, you know. Uh, when subtle methods don't work, people try direct methods. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. So she's holding on to his shirt, and he doesn't worry about his shirt. He doesn't worry about this, that, or the other. He runs. That word fled is the Hebrew word that is ordinarily used to mean a retreating army running from battle. And because Joseph, because the, the author here, Moses, wants you to really get the point, he says he fled and he got him out. You know, he got out of Dodge. If you get into a situation where you are tempted by sin, where sin is right in your face, I've got a strategy for you. Run away. And that's what Joseph does. He runs. Now, of course, at this point, Potiphar's wife is in a very interesting situation. Here she is. A man has just run out shirtless from her house. And here she is holding his clothes. So something that we need to understand, and it is that doing the right thing does not always mean that we will be better off. Part of me wants to say doing the right thing does not mean that we'll always be better off immediately. But I feel like that's not strong enough. Doing the right thing does not always mean that in this life we will be better off. You may die dealing with the consequences of doing the right thing. I read a story uh, studying for this about somebody who was at home studying, um, a high schooler, and they got a call from one of their friends that said, I'm at this party, I've been drinking, I don't want to drive, can you please come pick me up? This other high schooler gets there, uh, is getting, says, okay, I'm coming over there, I'm going to pick you up and we're leaving, I'm going to take you home. She gets there, and as she gets there, so do the police, right? That's how those things work. And she gets arrested along with the rest of them. Or she doesn't get arrested, I'm sorry. They, can, they do a breathalyzer, find out she hasn't been drinking, don't arrest her. But they put her name on a list. The school gets the list. And they suspend her, the school suspends her, and the school uh, kicks her off her captain spot on the volleyball team and a whole list of things of punishment. The uh, school attorney testified that she'd been arrested when she hadn't and different things. And unfortunately... Sometimes when you try to do the right thing, you get caught in a net. Joseph does the right thing here, and he still faces consequences. But that doesn't keep it from being the right thing. The right thing is not made right because of the consequences it has. The ends do not justify the means. And that's the thing is sometimes when we tell people stories and different things, um, we always kind of pick 
stories where somebody did the right thing and there could have been consequences, but it all turned out all right in the end. And then I'm afraid we don't prepare people for the real world. Jeremiah did the right thing by preaching the truth of God's judgment and the sin of the people. And he was rewarded by being sawed in half. Jesus told the truth about who he was and what people needed to do to have eternal life, and he was crucified. Peter preached the truth. He did the right thing, and he was crucified upside down. One after the other, people doing the right thing suffered for it. Say, well, what's the point then? When we get to the end of the story, we are going to see the same thing that we already read again. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. If I can get one thing into your head, if I can get one thing into your heart, I hope it's this. When Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it away from you. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it away from you. He says, it's better for you to enter into life, enter into life maimed. But here, here's the point. Jesus was not saying literally, go chop your hand off. He wasn't saying literally pluck your eye out. But he was saying, no matter how precious something is to you, it is better to give that up than to fall into sin. Here's what I want you to understand. Is that if you really did have to choose between your hand and fellowship with God, fellowship with God is worth more. He said, sin will break my fellowship with God, and so no matter what it costs, I am better off by having fellowship with God than having all the blessings of the world. And I wonder if you believe that. You know, I, I know if you're a Christian, you believe that, right? But I wonder if in your heart, if you know fellowship with God is worth more, doing the right thing is worth more. As I look out on all of you this morning, I see some of you that have suffered for doing the right thing. And all I can say is not that everything will work out. Not that ultimately in this life, the right thing is rewarded and the wrong things are punished because there are many people for whom it was not. But rather that it is better to suffer for the name of Christ. That it is better to have a deeper relationship with God. That it is better to stay close to God than to trade one minute of fellowship with God for all the blessings of the world. And if you've ever had close fellowship with God and lost it, or if you've ever been far from God and come back, then you know that's true. In the moment, you don't always remember that's true. In fact, in the moment, I would say you almost never remember that it's true. But nevertheless, it is. Your fellowship with the eternal God is better, more important, sweeter than anything the world has to offer. So Joseph runs. And now he is in this position. It came to pass when she, Potiphar's wife, saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and I fled and fled and got him out. Of course, Potiphar's wife tells the story a little differently, that he came in here to rape me. I, cry, I screamed, he ran away. What really happened, of course, was that she uh, came on to him, 
He ran away. She thought about it, camp with a plan, and decided her best course would be to scream. And she's, you know, she's very cold-blooded. Uh, he came, he brought a Hebrew unto us to mock us. Maybe uh, you can get the Hebrew uh, wordplay a little better, say fool with us. It's got the kind of double meaning of him going in to rape her as well as making a fool of them, mocking the whole household. This is, uh, this is the kind of thing that really resonates with people. You know, these uh, strange foreign people are going to come in, rape our wives, make a fool of us, take away what's rightfully ours. And she sort of plays on that kind of natural response against Joseph. And she laid his garment by her until his Lord came home. She doesn't leave it in her hand, for sure. She lays it by her side and says, look, this is where he left it when he ripped it off. And she came unto him according to these, she spoke unto him, unto Potiphar, according to these words, saying, the Hebrew servant, which thou hast brought unto us, came in unto me to mock me, to make a fool of me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. Now we're going to notice something very quickly. (coughs) Excuse me. What was the punishment? (coughs) Excuse me, goodness gracious, I'm sorry. Thank you. What was the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? Death. Right? In the Code of Hammurabi, a similar era uh, Babylonian code, if two people were caught committing adultery, they were tied together, since they liked being together so much, and thrown into the river to drown. Trying to rape the royal officer's wife does not get you thrown into prison. It gets you killed. Why is Joseph thrown into prison? Potiphar is not just any official. He is the captain of the guard. That means he is in charge of the prison, ultimately. He's, and the jailer answers to him. He's in charge of the executioner. It means that Joseph survived because Potiphar let him survive. Because Potiphar, it seems, did not really completely believe his wife's story. Because Joseph's character had shown him to be above reproach. Potiphar says, I know Joseph, and something about this does not make sense. So I can't just let it go, but I am going to put him into jail. He's put into jail instead of dying. And you say, well, Joseph's situation has gotten worse and worse and worse. He went from favorite son to slave, And it seemed like he was doing better for a while, but now he's lower than he ever was before. He did the right thing, and now he's being punished for it. And if I can say one thing unto you, it is that God had a bigger picture in mind than Joseph ever could have. Um, Augustus Strong uh, wrote a theology book, a systematic theology, in 1905. And in that book, he said there are four things God can do with sin. One, God never causes sin. That's not one of your four. One, God can prevent it. There are some sins you didn't do because God stopped you from doing it. Um, Abimelech, in the uh, story of Abraham, didn't touch Sarah because God kept him from doing it. The other thing God can do is he can restrain it. 
You know, he can allow it to happen, but control the extent of it. The third thing he can do is permit it. You know, in a, that example, Job, God told Satan, you can do this and this, but not that. He drew lines. He prevented the extent of the sin. One is he can permit it. He can say, go ahead. But the fourth thing, and I think God's favorite thing to do, is to redirect it. To take the sin of men and women and use it to accomplish his purposes. Like the Voyager spacecraft slinging around Jupiter, God takes all of the Potiphar's wife's sin and uses it to put Joseph exactly where he belongs. There is no account in the Bible of where uh, Potiphar's wife gets her due punishment. But there is the account of how God used it to accomplish Jacob, Joseph's rise. So when you are faced with a decision where you can do the right thing or the wrong thing, my question for you is, what is it that motivates you? The very last half of verse we're going to read, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Joseph in the prison. God was still with him. God still showed him mercy. God is with you, not on the basis of your circumstances, but on the basis of your relationship with him. So for you this morning, I point you to Joseph's relative, Jesus. Falsely accused of a capital crime. But unlike Joseph, not spared the full brunt of the punishment. Joseph was spared from death and through that was raised up to the throne of Egypt. Jesus was taken to death and through that was raised up to the throne of heaven. Where do we get our strategy? Is our strategy based on the way the world does things? I'm going to work hard, I'm going to advance myself. Or is our strategy based on, yes, I will do what's right no matter what, and I will trust God to work it all out no matter what the consequences are. I don't care if I'm in prison. I care if the Lord is with me. One of my favorite hymns written by John Newton, it's not Amazing Grace. Well, Amazing Grace is a good song. My favorite John Newton hymn is How Tedious and Tasteless the Hour. It's probably my favorite hymn at all. It says, How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet words, and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The clouds strive in vain to look gay. But when I am happy in him, December is as pleasant as May. The important verse is this. Content with beholding his face, my all to his pleasure resign. No changes in uh, something or place and make any change in my mind. Here it is. Content with beholding his face, a palace, a toy would appear. A prison, a palace would prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Is that your attitude? Is that I would rather be in the prison with Joseph than on the throne if the Lord is with me in the prison? You say, I don't know if I am in the valley of the shadow of death, but thou art with me. Do you believe that Jesus suffered it all so that he could be with you and that he's with you now? And that all the blessings of God are only accomplished through his presence, just like they were for Potiphar. So as we stand, we have a hymn of invitation.